Who wants to know what happens after we die? What happens to us, to our bodies, to our lives? What, what happens after a believer takes his or her last breath here on this earth? You see, this is the contradiction or this is the problem that Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, he's discussing this, or, or rather, if you know the Apostle Paul, it's not just a simple statement. He's actually providing an argument. He's going to lay it out sort of step by step what happens. And he wants to prove his point as a lawyer would prove his case. And, and some people go, Paul, that's a little wordy of you. And other people, I, I kind of enjoy it. I like watching him lay out his argument point by point and make his points to what he, what he wants us to believe or where, where he wants to lead us. And Greek philosophy and Jewish theology there in the city of Corinth are at odds at this point or over this point. You see, the Greeks, they taught that the body was kind of like a, a cage. It was the place the soul dwelt, and the soul needed to be set free from the body. And, and the Jewish, or the, even the Christians, which came out of Judaism, with the exception of the Sadducees, they taught that they, taught of a, they spoke of a resurrection from the dead. Man's ultimate triumph was not freedom from the body, but a transformation of the body. It wasn't that our soul is going to be set free, but our body is going to be transformed. Our victory isn't complete by merely escaping or leaving our flesh, but there needs to be a reshaping or a transforming of our flesh. The Jews believed God's goal was the elimination of sin's effect, and God would raise our bodies someday uncorrupted by sin. So as this debate is brewing within the Corinthian church, you had some people saying there is no such thing as the resurrection. In other words, when a person dies, that's it. They take their last breath, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's all there is. Nice knowing you, so long, good riddance, that's all there is to it. And there's a controversy because other people are saying there is such a thing as a resurrection. And I want to be clear, yes, the Corinthians were Christians. And they were certainly believing that Jesus rose from the dead because that's going to be the basis of Paul's argument. But they were holding on to this Greek concept of the afterlife. It was something they had learned prior to coming to Christ. And I would caution us and say that we also must be careful of our preconceived ideas or our ideas or our notions or even our beliefs before we come to Christ. We must be careful that they don't shape our theology. And what I mean by that is we need to be sure and confident and, be, and allow the only thing that shapes our theology are the scriptures, the word of God. Don't let a pastor shape your theology. Don't let a person or a book about the Bible. The scripture is where we need to find our theology or our doctrine on which we stand. And Paul's writing this letter to them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's essentially trying to straighten them out. In the first 11 verses, he began his argument for a resurrection of the dead by taking them back to the very simplicity of the gospel. He told us in verses 3 and 4, the gospel is simply this, that Christ died. Christ was buried, and Christ rose again on the third day. There has to be a resurrection because Christ rose again. And then the, apostle, or then, then the apostle Paul went on and he said to prove this resurrection, to prove that he rose again on the third day, he cited over six incidences and over 500 people who witnessed the resurrected Lord. He said, consider the apostles, consider the 500 people at once, consider all of these things and these people who have seen the resurrected Christ. So he carefully walked them through this and he proved his argument through his eyewitness testimony because it's the very basis for his position. If Christ rose from the dead, then you and I will also rise from the dead because we are in Christ. Now let's look at verse 12 as he would pose this logical question to those that, are, that would say that there is no resurrection. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 says this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul has already proven Christ's resurrection with the witnesses and the appearances. So his question is simply this. If there is no resurrection from the dead, how is it that you're preaching Christ was raised from the dead? In other words, they were sharing the gospel and they were telling people that Christ is raised from the dead. He died for their sins. He was buried. He rose again. But yet now they're saying for the believer, for the Christian, there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, how is that possible? You're talking about a resurrection from the dead in the mere fact that you're sharing the gospel. And it's important to remember that the resurrection is not just some afterlife that comes at some unknown period of time after you die. It's not just something that will happen some point in the future. The resurrection that Paul is speaking about is the continuation of our life after our death in our glorified bodies. It's moving from this life into a life in a glorified body in eternity with Christ. That should be good news. Aren't you glad that this is not all there is on this earth? Aren't you glad that the suffering and the pain and the illness and the things that we have to struggle with or fight with or deal with on this earth, that's, that's it, that's it. Can you imagine? How pitiful would that be? And that's exactly what he's going to call it. Paul will not say we have to die and then rise again. He's going to say at our death, we're changed. At our death, we're changed. He's asking them, how do you possibly deny the resurrection of the dead, but preach the resurrection of Christ? This doesn't make any sense. Now, the truth is, they were mistaken. They had some bad doctrine. They didn't quite understand what was taking place. And before we become too hard on them, we need to know what they did. They were forming what they believed. They were forming their doctrine without thinking carefully. They hadn't thought it through. We, we, when it comes to forming what we believe, we need to make sure we think carefully, that we think it through. But we also need to ask ourselves this question, does it line up with the word of God? In other words, when I'm going to create something that I believe, whether I'm going to take a stand on something one way or the other way, I have to be able to say, where does it fit in the word of God? And as we go through these verses this morning, you might look and scratch your head and go, man, that's a whole lot of verses. It doesn't really say much. Why, why do we have to cover all that? Couldn't you pick a more interesting sermon? No, we don't do that. We travel verse by verse, line by line, precept upon precept. We're traveling through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and we've come to this section this morning, and God penned it so that we would learn it. So we're going to learn it and we're going to teach it. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament yet. Paul was just writing it. He was writing this letter that would then become the New Testament for us. So we can't be too hard on them. But what they were doing is they were allowing their previous beliefs and the influence of the culture to influence what they believed. And they were making that mistake. Listen, if you need to explain away or exclude a portion of Scripture to validate your belief, then it's not a belief worth holding on to. In other words, if you have to go, well, that scripture doesn't apply to today, well, then I think it's more likely that your belief is wrong than the scripture is wrong. We don't twist, we don't turn, we don't shape the scripture to make it say what we want it to say. If we come to a place in scripture where it says one thing and we have to exclude this one and go, well, that one must be wrong, or we have to manipulate or twist it to make it fit together, we're better off taking a stance saying, well, I just believe both. Because the Bible says both. Well, that doesn't make sense. They stand in contradiction to one another. doesn't matter. You may not always understand what God's doing. I suggest there's no one alive that understands this book word for word and every part of it and everything behind it. It's impossible. He's God. We only know what he wants us to know. 
We only know what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. So Paul's setting out here in this letter, this portion of his letter, and he wants to show them the consequences of their thinking or of their bad theology. What they thought, there was no resurrection. They were arguing that a person dies and that's it. Look what he says at the beginning of verse 13 as he lays out the problem with this line of thinking. He's going to do it in a series of if statements that each build on one another. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God. That he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do rise, then Christ is not risen. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. Let me say it to you a little bit easier. I know that's hard to follow sometimes. What Paul's saying is this. He's saying if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ couldn't have possibly risen from the dead. He's saying if you believe there's no resurrection, how could you believe that Christ rose from the dead? If nobody rises from the dead, it must mean that Christ did not rise from the dead. And if Christ is not risen, then the very fact of your preaching, of you sharing the gospel, he says it's empty or means it's lacking truth. In other words, if it didn't really happen, you're telling people lies. You're just, you're just lying to people. And he says, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is also empty. It's useless. And then in verse 17, he says, our faith, if he hasn't risen, is futile. It literally means that if Christ did not rise from the dead, your faith in Christ is worthless. has no value whatsoever. And he also says, if that's not bad enough, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then essentially what we are is false witnesses. We're telling lies about something that didn't really happen. We're false witnesses. We've lied to the people. He says, if Christ has not risen, and then death, if Christ has not risen, that means death still has power over him. That means he's still dead. It means he's not God, as you have said that he was God. Because if Christ has not risen, even worse, your sins aren't forgiven. See, when we all came to Christ, if you came to Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, you know the moment you gave your life to him and he forgave your sins and you realize the guilt that was, and the shame that was taken away from you, he goes, that's not true if Christ didn't rise from the dead. It's not, it didn't happen. He says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, those who have died before us, well, they're perished for all eternity. That's it, they're dead. They're never coming back. Ne you'll never see them again. There's nothing, it's gone. There, there's nothing, there's no value there. It, it's happened. They've eternally perished. And he says, if Christ is not risen and all of the hope we have is in this world, from our birth to our death, he says, that's pitiable. That's pitiful. Because that's pathetic. Because that's, that's horrible. In other words, that word pitiable it means miserable or to be pitied. You should pity somebody like that. That's an unbeliever. Do you know they have no hope after the life? Unbeliever has no, has, an unbeliever in Christ does not carry the same hope that a believer has. 
They can't endure what a believer can endure the way that a believer can endure it. If there is no resurrection, then this whole Christian life and this hope that we have, Paul says it's just some pitiful joke. In other words, we're wasting our time here this morning. He said, if there's no resurrection, what are we even here for? If we don't have something beyond this life to look forward to. If this is all there is, why should we bother struggling with the problems or the difficulties of being a Christian? You say, wait a minute. You just said there's problems or difficulty being a Christian. There is. There's specific problems that come with Christianity. Don't you know that? Oh, consider the Muslim who gives their life to Christ in a Muslim country whose family turns their back on them, who they're forced to flee for their safety or for their life. That's a Christian problem that comes with giving their life to Christ. Consider the Apostle Paul himself. What did he have to endure because he held the gospel and he shared the gospel? He endured shipwrecks. He endured beatings, imprisonments, and many other difficulties for the gospel. What type of difficulties or problems have you endured? Oh, see, we live in the United States of America. We've got it pretty good. We don't have to endure life-threatening conditions. We haven't been beaten for our, our faith in Christ. But I still suggest to you there's issues that go along with the gospel. There's issues that go along if you're a publicly proclaiming Christian. You may get passed over for a promotion at work. You may have to say goodbye to some of your old friends who are bringing you down. You may have to struggle with doing what's right. You may have to say goodbye to some family members because they might not invite you to things anymore. They might not want to be around you. Those are all things that are associated with your Christ, with Christ, following Christ. If there's nothing beyond this world, why would we bother doing that? It would make no sense at all. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is not without its difficulty. It's not without its problems. But what we gain is far superior. The hope that we have goes beyond. Our sins are forgiven. Eternity lies for us to look forward to. We can now endure difficulties with hope and joy because we know there's something else coming. And that joy is not based on our earthly circumstance. Oh, I love to watch a Christian go through a difficult season with joy and worship in their heart. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that they just skip through life going, who cares, I doesn't, I'm dealing with illness, I'm dealing with health issues, no big deal. No, it doesn't mean it's not hard. But they still praise God through it. And they know God has a reason, they know God's doing something, and they realize, they get their minds, I'm looking towards eternity. I may never get better on this earth. My problems may never get solved as long as I'm alive, but I know eternity's coming. And I know someday I'm going to exchange this body for a spiritual body. I know I'm going to say goodbye to all my problems here on this earth, and I can't wait to be with my Savior face to face. It is well with my soul. That's what we get to look forward to as Christians. For an unbeliever, they don't have that hope. They don't have that joy. Their, their happiness, their joy doesn't come until the difficulty ends. There can be no value in something good, something difficult or hard. Their only source of happiness or joy is that source which they create themselves here on this earth. It could be in a successful business relationship. It could be in a, in, a, in, a, in a marriage. It could be even in sin for a season they could find joy. But it doesn't last for all eternity. It only lasts until the next problem comes along. As Christians, it's so much different because we understand that our life here is temporary. Do you forget that sometimes? Do you remember that your life here is temporary? 
that no matter what you face, because here's what happens in our life, we get focused on what's going on in our life at the very moment. And sometimes in difficult or bad circumstances, it looks bad, it looks dark, it looks grim, it looks bleak. And we need scriptures, we need things like the Apostle Paul to say, hey, there's a resurrection coming. This is not all there is. It's going to get better. No matter how bad it seems right now, there's coming a day where you're going to be face to face with the Lord forever. You're going to exchange this body, you're going to exchange these problems, these issues for eternity with him. Where there will be no more crying, no more sadness, no more tears, no more pain, all of those things. That's what allows us to endure here on this earth. Because this earth is filled with sin. And sin is difficult. It brings death. You see, if there is no resurrection, everything we do as Christians is pointless. We'd be wasting our time. Paul goes on to explain to them the resurrection and the effects of the resurrection. And now I've got to warn you, he's going to get a little theological in his argument. But follow along. He says in verse 20, But now... Christ is risen from the dead. He told us what happens if he's not, but now he tells us in verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means those who have died. First fruits, what does it mean to be first fruits? In the Jewish law, the feast of first fruits was observed on the day after the Sabbath following Passover. They had the Feast of First Fruits right after Passover. Significantly, Jesus rose from the dead on the exact day of the Feast of First Fruits. The day of the beginning of Feast of First Fruits is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. On this day of First Fruits, the Israelites would take a portion of their harvested grain or their harvested fruit or whatever it was, they would take the first fruits, the first producing things out of the field or off the trees, and they would bring it and offer it to the Lord. It was a way of them recognizing there's more coming. The Lord has blessed us with the harvest a little bit, but we know once the harvest comes in, there's going to be a lot more. When you get your first couple of apples off the apple tree, it lets you know what's coming, more apples. When you get your first couple of berries, from the, from the raspberry bush or whatever you like to do in the summertime, whatever you like to collect, you know it's coming. Summer's coming, and with summer's bringing all the harvest into the fall. We know it's coming. Right now, we're not harvesting much of anything, are we? But we know once we start to see the fruit coming on the vine and we start to see those things, it's coming. And during the Feast of First Fruits, there was no atoning blood necessary on the sacrifice. Why? Why didn't they need to have blood with it? Because the Passover lamb had just been sacrificed. They had just sacrificed the Passover lamb days before, and it corresponds perfectly with the resurrection of Christ because he was our Passover lamb. We are the first fruits. He rose from the dead first, and then those who are in him will rise with him someday. You may be thinking, wait a minute, I remember in the Bible where other people rose from the dead. There's that guy Lazarus, and Jesus healed a few kids, and, and I remember other people. What's the difference? They rose from the dead before Jesus did. Oh, but there's a big difference. All the people to this point rose from the dead only to die again. Talk about a miserable thing. It might be cool that he rose somebody from the dead, but guess what? Can you imagine dying twice? Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. He took his seat at the right hand of the Father never to die again when he ascended into heaven. Everybody else in the Bible that has been risen from the dead all went to the tomb again. Look at verse 21 as Paul sort of explains how this works. 
He says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Paul's, in a sense, communicating the same thing he did in Romans chapter 5 when we studied it. Essentially, and let me summarize it and make it real easy for you. He's saying there's, there's two heads of the human race. There's Adam and there's Jesus. What did Adam bring into the world? Sin. Adam and Eve sinned, bringing sin into the world. When sin came into the world, what was the result of sin entering the world? Death. Prior to sin, there was no death in the Garden of Eden. Animals weren't eating animals. There was no death. Prior to sin, it didn't happen. Sin is what brings death into the world. When people say, wait a minute, why are such bad things happening in the world? It's a result of sin being brought into the world. Adam brought sin into the world. Jesus, who is known as the second Adam, he did not sin. And he brings resurrection to all people. So let me see if you're confused. Let me explain it a different way. People who are born once... If you've been born once, means you've been born on this earth, and all of you have been born once. I can guarantee it because you're sitting here. You've all been born once, right? You've all been born, born, born once. You were born on the, under the destiny of your father, Adam. You're born sinners. You're born, you make mistakes. We don't teach our kids, you know, how to sin. We teach them not to sin. We don't teach our kids, you know, you need to be a little more selfish, Johnny. No, we teach them, no, you need to be a little more sharing. Naturally, it happens to us. We're born sinners. That's what we're saying. If you're born once, you're born under Adam. But people who are born again, people who are born a second time, we're born spiritually under Christ. So our headship transfers from Adam to Christ. So now that we come underneath Christ, we're destined to be like him. The resurrection that he did, he's the first fruits, we will be the harvest that follows. Isn't it cool how that works? Now, just to be clear, he's talking about the believer here. Both the believer and the unbeliever will be resurrected in the future, but it will be at different times. The believer to be with Christ, the unbeliever at the white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. I don't have time to turn there, but if you'd like to read it for yourself after, I would encourage you to do so. Now look at verse 23. He says, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming, that's the believer's, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So Paul just went into end time stuff. He just went in and laid it out. What's coming? What's happening? He just said each one is going to be risen in his own order. Christ first and then the rest of us after him. And when does he say that we're going to be raised? He says at his coming. When is his coming? This is when Jesus comes to earth again. He's not talking about the rapture of the church here. He's talking about the second coming. The rapture of the church is when we go to meet the Lord in the air, those who are believers. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus will return to earth. That's his second coming. He will set up a throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign from Jerusalem. That's when he's talking about his second coming. That's detailed for us in Revelation chapter 19. And what's going to happen at this time? What, 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 Rob, you're confused. What's going to take place? Paul says this. He says he will deliver the kingdom to God, the Father, and put an end to rule and all authority and power. Have we seen that happen yet in history? No. 
No, because we still see nations ruling nations. And there's still wars going on. There's still authority struggles. It's all happening. We still see that. So this hasn't taken place yet. It will happen at the beginning of the millennial reign when I believe Jesus Christ will set up his throne in Jerusalem and physically rule the earth from Jerusalem. The scriptures tell us Satan will be bound for a thousand years and Christ will literally rule from Jerusalem. Now, why would this need to happen? Paul, why are you telling us this? Look at verse 25. Why does he need to reign? For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Has, Beth, has death been destroyed yet? In Christ it has, but not completely. Death will be present on the earth in the tribulation period and into the millennial reign. And let me, this, is, this is what a lot of people misunderstand. When we leave, you know, I believe the rapture of the church will happen and the people, those that believe will be taken out off of the earth. Those people that don't believe will then go into a tribulation period. There will be people who make it through that who are living in human fleshly bodies just like we are today, just like we're sitting here. They'll be living all the way through the millennial period. At the end of the millennial period, the scripture tells us Satan's going to be released. And he's going to be given the opportunity to deceive the world one more time. Now, those of us that were raptured, those of us that are with Christ, not us, we're, we're tucked away, we're safe, we're with the Lord. But those people who are alive on the earth in the millennial period will be dying just like we do today. They will, Satan will be allowed out uh, unchained and allowed to deceive them one more time. Well, why would anybody want to believe Satan with Christ on the rain, sitting on the, on the throne in Jerusalem? The scriptures tell us this, that there will be people that number as the, as the grains of sand on the seashore that will come against Christ and his saints. He, they're, they're, a large part of the population during the millennial reign will be deceived, is what the scripture tells us in Revelation. As the number of grains of sand on the seashore, they will then be destroyed. Revelation chapter 2014 tells us this. After that happens, remember what he said, the last thing to take place is going to be Death will be destroyed. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. He said, then death and Hades, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is at the end of the millennial reign. At the end of the millennial reign, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's the position he's talking when there is no more death. Look at verse 27. This is what's going to happen. For, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted or excluded. In other words, God's not putting himself underneath of Jesus. Paul's excluding the possibility of God being under Jesus' feet. And in verse 28, if you're confused, he clarifies it. He says, now when all things are made subject to him, that's subject to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, that's God the Father, who put all things under him, that's Jesus, that God may be all in all. This is an area of scripture that those people that deny the deity of Christ, this is where they turn to. If you ever talk to somebody that says, no, no, Jesus is just the son of God. He's not really God. This is where they're going to take you and this is where they're going to prove it to you. They're going to say that, no, no, this, this proof, this is our proof text, if you will. But the submission of Jesus to the father doesn't come from inferiority. It doesn't come from that way. It comes from the administrative order. It's the way that the Lord set things up. He's not saying that Jesus is in any way inferior to the Father. He's just underneath of the Father. And it works the same way in a marriage relationship. He's not saying a wife is any 
less superior to a man. It's just the hierarchy or the order that the Lord has set up. Both are equal in substance, is in other words what he's saying. And let me summarize Paul's argument for you. I know we kind of got theological and off base a little while. Little while. Paul's saying if Jesus was raised from the dead first, if he was raised, then those of us who believe on Christ will also be raised from the dead. And as I listened to Paul's argument, and maybe you had this same thing come to mind, a couple of questions come to mind. I naturally want to ask the question, when will we be raised from the dead? And how will we be raised from the dead? Give us more details. Give us more insights. Well, continuing on this week, we're going to see when. And then next week in verse 35, we'll begin to see the how. So let's first look at the when. Will we be raised at the rapture? Will we be raised at the second coming? Is it immediately upon our death? Give us some more information here, Paul. You haven't really answered all my questions. Can you tell me some more? And the truth is, Paul doesn't really answer some of those questions here. He really doesn't give us the answers that are at least the answers that I was looking for. But you know what? In his next letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he clarifies some things. He makes some things that, that we need to understand clear. If you'll turn with me a few pages to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the first eight verses. And really we're focusing on 6 and 7 and 8, but I want to read the first uh, five verses for context. For we know that if our earthly house, that's our body, this tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall be found naked. For we who are in the tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. The morality may be, that morality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now listen carefully to verse 6. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, that's our flesh, that's where we are right now, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In other words, what Paul's saying is when we are in the body, we're absent from the Lord. But at some point in the future, we're going to be absent from the body. And the moment we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. I firmly believe that the moment that we take our last breath here on this earth, I think that once we take our last breath, once you are done living, once your heart stops beating, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be absent from this body, but you will be present with the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying there. Now let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you thought it was weird a few verses ago, it's going to get worse. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? 
And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? You say, wait a minute, Rob. This is, this, I've heard of that baptism from the dead. That's, that's the thing the Mormons do. They baptize people for the dead. What, what's going on? This seems kind of weird. This is where they get it from. This is the scripture they pull it from. These verses seem to imply that somebody, somewhere, is baptizing people for who have died before them. They're baptizing people who are alive in an effort to, um, to transfer that, that baptism vicariously to somebody who's gone or gone before them. They're trying to, trying to do that. If this is the case, Paul's not condoning the practice. He's just simply pointing it out. Notice he says they and we. He says they being baptized for the dead, but he says we stand in jeopardy. And Paul brings up two very important points there. He says, if there, in other words, he's saying, if there is no resurrection, why are they being baptized for the dead? Why are they doing it? If there is no resurrection, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? And that means, why do we stand in danger every hour for the gospel? Why are we risking our life for the gospel if there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, to explain this scripture, most Bible scholars believe that when Paul is talking about they, those people who are baptized for the dead, He's referring to a pagan custom where they were baptizing vicariously to false gods. He's saying, just to prove to you there's a resurrection, even the pagans are baptizing vicariously for false gods. So they must believe in some sort of resurrection or they wouldn't be doing that. And then he says, we, we, we stand in jeopardy every hour. In other words, if there is no resurrection, why are we placing our life in jeopardy for this gospel why would paul endure what he endured for the gospel if there was no resurrection why would why would believers do that why why would why would a muslim flee their country why would a why would a, a, a muslim person be willing to, to to say goodbye to their entire family and choose christ over everything around them if there was no resurrection the answer is they wouldn't it would make no sense in verse 31 paul uses his own life as an example he says i affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is that to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul's looking at his own life, and he mentions something there. He says, why do I bother fighting with beasts at Ephesus? And that, that's, that incident's not recorded for us in Scripture, but I can only imagine that Paul was placed into an arena with wild animals for the gospel because he was sharing the gospel. We're not told any more about it other than what we see right there. But essentially what he's saying is, why, would, why do I risk my life for the gospel? It doesn't make any sense. Why would I do such a thing? In fact, he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why don't we just go out and get drunk and have a party? Why don't we just enjoy this life? Why, why, are we, why would we say no to our flesh on anything? We might as well just go feed our flesh whatever it wants. Let's just go have a big party because that's, that's all that's happening. And if you're sitting out there this morning, you go, yeah, that, that's right. That's what I believe. Let's just go have a big party. It doesn't really matter. Look what he says in verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some... Do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame or your fault. Paul's saying if you don't believe in a resurrection, then you're simply being deceived. And he says you've developed these beliefs through the corruption of other people, through evil people. It's time to wake up to righteousness. Evil company corrupts good habits, he says. And I, this is kind of interesting because he makes this quote. 
evil company corrupts good habits. And it's not from the Old Testament. It's not from the scriptures. It's from a, a pagan playwright who wrote this. Yet the Lord put it on Paul's heart to pen it here in the scriptures. You see, the reason some of these Corinthians had embraced these false ideas is because they were hanging out with people who believed them. Who do you choose to hang around with? The people you hang around with will shape your ideas and your beliefs. I can guarantee it. I can promise you the people, the friends that you're choosing to hang around with are going to shape the way you believe. They can talk you into things and they can talk you out of things. As a Christian, go hang around with some non-Christian friends for a little while and see what happens. The moment you quit, quit affecting them for Christ is when you need to move. Change friends. Find someone else to hang out with. You see, as Christians, we need to hang around with each other because we can build each other up, not pull each other down. That's why we're having fellowship, coffee fellowship, Calvary Cafe on Friday nights. It's a chance to go, what are we doing on Friday night? Well, we're going to go out to dinner. Well, then, come, on, come by here afterwards and hang out with some believers. It's a chance to just gather and, and meet one another. If we hang around with the wrong, wrong crowd, they're going to rub off on you. It's true. The people you hang around with are going to make a difference in your life. It's very, very difficult to be around ungodly people as a Christian. Have you noticed that? Now, we need to be there. We should never isolate ourselves from the world. We need to be in the world and not of the world. My former career, before I was a pastor, I was a police officer down in South Florida. I hung around with a lot of people that weren't Christians. And I had to be very, very careful that it was me affecting them for Christ and not allowing them to affect me because the moment they began to affect me negatively, I needed to not be at that party. I needed to not be around that group of people. I need, I need to step back and realize this is, not, this is not who I am. The people you hang around with, if you, if you hang around with a bunch of people that complain, do you know what you'll be? A complainer. The, the world knows this. The, the, the books on business say hang around with successful people and you'll be successful. Hang around with people that aren't doing anything you won't do anything. But the world teaches that. That's just simple things. So it's always good for us as believers to say, wait a minute, who are we hanging around with? Who's affecting us and who are we affecting? Are we, being affected? Are we hanging around with our television set, being negatively affected for Christ? Then stop. Start hanging around with the Bible. Start hanging around with people that are going to affect you positively. You see, when it comes to scriptures like this, as a pastor, I would rather skip over all these verses that we taught this morning. I go, well, they're just not that exciting, Lord. I'd rather, I'd rather teach like the message last week about the gospel and holding fast. And I'd rather do that kind of stuff. But the Lord wrote them in the scriptures. And he went to such detail to have the apostle Paul lay out the fact that I want you to be confident that there's a resurrection from the dead. I don't want you to wonder. I don't want you to doubt. I'm going to write an entire chapter about it. So when you're hanging around with somebody who doesn't believe, and they say, I don't believe in anything after death. Well, let me show you 1 Corinthians 15. Let me show you what the Lord's word says. Let me show you what the word of God says. Because if you didn't know that before you walked in here, now you can take them there and prove it. You see, sometimes we come across the scriptures that are fantastic. Oh, I love teach. I could teach last week's message every week. Then I come across this stuff, and I think, you know, that's not as exciting to teach as a pastor. It's a little doctrinal. It's a little wordy. Paul, couldn't you just make it simple for us? The Lord says, my people need to hear the full counsel of God. That's why we do every chapter, every verse of every book. That's why we work our way through the Bible systematically so that someday we can stand before the Lord and say, as a pastor, I'll stand before the Lord and say, I taught them the full counsel of God. I taught them the whole word of God, all of it, every piece of it, every word of it, not skipping over the parts that I didn't feel like teaching. It is so important that we come with the heart to learn that. Let's pray. Father, as we come across scriptures like this, we see, or we have a tendency to just, think, man, I don't understand it. It's a little wordy. 
But Lord, there's something you're teaching us there and you're showing us the proof of the resurrection. Paul's laying out this beautiful argument. He's showing us what it's going to look like. And we'll see in the coming verses, he's going to tell us how the dead are raised up. Lord, as we study these scriptures, would we be able to take them and apply them to our life? If we walk away from nothing else here this morning, would we know, would we leave here being more confident that there is a resurrection from the dead? That there is an eternity, as Paul lays it out for us. And Lord, I pray that each person here would realize the value of eternity. That they would spend more time focusing on eternity than they would focusing on retirement. For one will only be a few years of unknown amount. And one will be forever. May we store up our treasures in heaven where they can't be stolen or decaying. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.